following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 1030, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. I went on my first date with my wife on September 4th, 2014. We went to Eaton's Beach Restaurant in Weirsdale, Florida. Anybody ever been to Weirsdale, Florida? No one. That's what I thought. Weirsdale, Florida, the booming metropolis of Weirsdale. Um, It's centered around Lake Weir, and I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but we went to this place. It was our first date, but it was unlike any first date experience that I had ever had. Uh, Not that I was an expert in first dates, uh, but anyways, it was unlike anything before. Uh, We had been friends for three years leading up to that date. So it wasn't one of those times where it's kind of like a job interview, where you're asking, you know, tell me, what are your goals? Uh, tell me about your, your career experience. I, we didn't have those conversations because I knew her family. I knew her faith. We served together at our church. We'd become friends. And so it was really a, a really interesting experience that was the beginning of, of something amazing. Now, although that wasn't like a job interview, I did ironically share with her that I was in the process of interviewing with a church in South Florida. So Weirsdale, just outside of Gainesville, about five hours from here, I inform her on our first date so that if this thing is going to go anywhere, we're going to have to be willing to more than likely be long distance. I was interviewing with this church. It's called West Pines Community Church. It's a, a great place. You should check it out. And I, I told her, first date, so uh, surprise, you know, this might end up going in a long distance direction. And if I think back to the whole interview process at West Pines, meeting with the pastors, the elders, uh, it was a thorough and awesome experience, except for one thing. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. There was one part of the West Pines Community Church application that I filled out that absolutely got on my nerves. There's this sinister evil list that rather than giving you the open-ended opportunity to list your strengths and weaknesses, like most applications might give you that opportunity, because see, when it's open-ended, you could write something like this for your weakness, I care too much. You know, sometimes I'm such a perfectionist that I strive for excellence almost to a fault, right? You could put some silly nonsense like that. But this list, what it did was it listed 12 different competencies or qualities that you would want in a leader. 12 things that are awesome, and it tells you, you have to rank this, what are you best at and what are you worst at? So there's something on that list that's good that you wish you had, but you're going to have to put a number 12 next to it. And inevitably, those things that were at the bottom of the list came up in the in-person interviews, and that was fun. And I hated that part of our interview process. Now, any job interview, one of the things that an employer is going to want to find out is what are your strengths, what are your weaknesses, what are you competent in? They want to see if those strengths and weaknesses, if your competencies match up with the job description, if they gel well with the role that you're going to try and fill. There's something, however, about leadership, whether it's at home, at work, at school, in whatever sphere of influence God has called you to, there's some things about leadership that don't belong on such a list because they're so essential that they're not the kind of thing you can hire out to make up for your weaknesses. One of the things that leaders often do is they have the self-awareness to recognize what they're good at and what they're not so good at. And so when we might have a weakness in an area, one of the things we might do is add a team member who maybe they're a good administrator when we're poor in that area. 
Maybe we add someone who's creative and who could think creatively about certain things when we might not be so good in that direction. But there's something about leadership that you can't just delegate to someone else. That if this is a weakness in the way we lead, it's something we have to own and we have to take responsibility for and improve on. It's not something you could just hire a team member to make up for your deficiency. And that's what Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Before we get there, I'm going to give you a little bit of the big idea. I'm going to give you half of it. Uh, And so if you're writing notes, you can write this down. This is half of what we're going to be talking about. I'm going to leave you in suspense for the rest of it. Uh, But here's half of the big idea. In leadership, competencies are always preferable. In leadership, competencies are always preferable. We want gifted and talented people. We want our kids to grow in their giftings. We want them to hone their craft. We want our teams at work, at school, whatever environment we're placed in, we want them to be competent. It's so critical, it's so important, but there is something, there is something that's so essential. It's not something that we can just add on a list and rank if we're not good at it. Something we all need to own. And so that brings us to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 7. I'm going to read this. We're going to work our way through this passage uh, and then talk a little bit about each section. So here's what the Apostle Paul, Silas, and Timothy have to say to this church in Thessalonica. They say this, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Now let me pause there and give you a little bit of the scenery. Paul and his companions... Timothy and Silas, they're writing to this church in Thessalonica. Uh, Thessalonica was a booming city in the Roman Empire. Uh, It was a a very prominent place, a lot of influential people there in Thessalonica. And Paul, Silas, and Timothy were apostles who went from city to city proclaiming the message of Jesus that just about a decade and a half before Jesus died, rose again, and now calls people to follow him as their Lord and Savior. They start proclaiming this message all throughout the Roman Empire, and they get to the city of Thessalonica. And they start this community of faith there, this community that believes and holds to the gospel, that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. So they proclaim this message, the gospel takes root in Thessalonica, and then Paul, Silas, and Timothy, through a series of events, end up having to leave. In fact, you should read the account in Acts chapter 17, but there's some people who, upon seeing the growth of this movement, there in the city, they feel threatened. And they issue a criticism of the apostles, thinking that they're giving them a diss when they say, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, trying to accuse or criticize them when in fact that's exactly what they were seeking to do, trying to completely turn the culture and community in Thessalonica upside down with the gracious news of God's loving forgiveness in Christ. So they came there, and they were kicked out of the city. And now Paul, Silas, and Timothy write back to them, and they begin this section where they're talking about how they behaved, how they conducted themselves while they were there in that city. And our conviction in this series is, okay, if these men turned the world upside down, that first generation of Christians, the gospel took root throughout the largest and most powerful empire of the time. If these men turned the world upside down and this is how they conducted themselves, then we should be looking closely, looking at their example, examining the way they conducted themselves. And here, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, these three men describe how they functioned like a nursing mother caring for her child, that they were gentle among them. They had this affection. 
this special bond. There's a special and unique bond between a mother and their child. And Paul, Silas, and Timothy said, this is how we feel and we conducted ourselves among you. Though when they got there, they were strangers. When they were there, they treated them as a nursing mother caring for her child. Then he continues in verse eight. Look what verse eight says. It says, so being affectionately desirous of you, longing for you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. In this verse, we see the hearts of these people. We see the hearts of Paul, Timothy, and Silas with this longing and affection for these people. They say, here's what we did. We shared with you two things. The first thing they shared that they say is we shared with you the gospel of God. Now, that's not a word we should just kind of gloss over, continue on, say, oh yeah, the gospel, got that. Move on to the more important stuff. When they say we came and we proclaimed to you the gospel of God, this is the heartbeat of Christianity. This is the, the centerpiece of Jesus' ministry. This is what matters most. It's the essential that we'll never let go of. The gospel is that a holy and perfect God looked down on unholy and imperfect people like us. That God will look down on us, though we have rejected his authority over our lives, though we have lived according to our own plans and our own purposes and our own design, we think we're the captain of our own soul. We've said, God, I know you say this, but here's how I'm going to live my life anyway. God looked down on us as we've rejected him, and rather than stepping back and saying, all right, have it your way, deal with it, God instead enters in, the author of life writes himself into his own narrative, and he steps into human history in the person of Jesus Christ, and God lives among his creation, and unlike us, Jesus was perfect in every way. He never once lied, never once was jealous or selfish the way we are. He was perfect in every way, sinless, and yet the perfect son of God was sentenced to die a sinner's death, where he was nailed to a Roman cross. And let's make no mistake about it, it was our sin that put Jesus on the cross. That our sin, our rebellion against our creator put the perfect son of God on that cross. And it was on that cross that Jesus absorbed all of the punishment our sins deserve. The judgment, the wrath, that we deserve for our rejection of our creator, Jesus stepped in our place and say, I'll take it for them. And Jesus' death in our place pays for all of our sins so that God's justice, his justice is vindicated so that we can be made right with him. And then three days after Jesus' death, God raised him from the dead, proving that sin had been defeated and that death was no more. And that anyone who receives Jesus is forgiven, is made new. And so maybe you come here today and you thought, or by some means you thought that the way to get right with God or the way to go to heaven is to be a good person or to go to church or to pray. And all of those things are good things. But the radical message of Jesus, the message that these apostles came proclaiming is that no one is good enough to go to heaven. None of us earn heaven. What we've earned by our actions is hell, but the one who's earned heaven has chosen to die in our place, take hell for us so that we might experience heaven with God. Jesus did that for us. And they go throughout the Roman Empire, this dominant place where they say Caesar is Lord and they say, no, Jesus is Lord. They proclaim this saving message of what Jesus has done for us. And they go throughout and they proclaim this message, but that's not all that they share. 
They didn't just show up, preach a sermon, and then say, all right, see you later. It says that they also shared their own selves. That word self, it describes the inner self, the soul, the real you. These apostles, they came in, they proclaimed the message of Jesus, and then they opened up their lives to these people, these strangers. They had dinner with people who disagreed with them. They sat down and invited people into their fellowship, into their community, who had very different backgrounds than they did. They shared their own selves. They shared their lives with them. And so it says they shared those two things. And then look at what verses 9 through 12 say. After they use this motherly example of how they were gentle among them, like a mother, watch how it then turns and he uses a fatherly example. So look at what he says in verses 9 through 12. It says this, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. To summarize these verses, verse 9, he describes how they worked extra hard to support themselves while they were there in Thessalonica. Paul, Silas, and Timothy likely were a part of Paul's business. He was a tent maker. Paul worked extra hours to help support himself and his companions so that he might not place a financial burden on the people there in Thessalonica. So he describes how they took the extra burden on themselves. Verse 10 describes how they lived with integrity. While they were there, there was no hidden agenda. They weren't trying to hide anything. They were holy, righteous, and blameless. And then verses 11 through 12, here's the father imagery he uses. He says, like a father with his children, we encouraged, we charged, we exhorted that individually they got down and they spoke to people. They confronted them in love. They instructed them on what God wants for them that they might live a life worthy of the God who calls them into his own kingdom and glory. So in this passage, he's describing their conduct and this father imagery coupled with the motherly imagery that he used earlier in verses eight and nine, paints for us an interesting aspect of leadership. When we consider that these people were strangers to Paul and Silas when they arrived in Thessalonica, they did not know them. They had very little in common with them. And yet they showed up there, they opened up their lives to these people and bonded with them. This shows, them, this shows us an aspect of leadership that you cannot hire out. When we're deficient in this area, can't simply delegate this to another team member. Here it is. So the first half of our statement was that in leadership, competencies are always preferable. But here's the second part. In leadership, competencies are always preferable, but love is never optional. We care for people. Paul and Silas come and they said, when we came among you, we didn't just come to share the gospel of God. We shared ourselves with you. We cared for people like a mother and like a father care for their children. That's how we cared for you. That's not something that if you're poor at loving people, caring for people, you can't just say to someone else, hey, uh, can you take that part of the job description? The kinds of environments where people like working, where children flourish in the home, is where care is shown to the individuals. See, competencies, they're preferable. We want sharp people, qualified people, gifted people, but love is never optional. So they come in and they share this. So right now, I am wearing glasses, and whenever I don't have my glasses on, 
people think I'm like a, you know, like a unicorn. They think I'm weird. People who know me are like, whoa, you look so strange without your glasses. But I'm, gonna, I'm wearing glasses, and I'm going to try and not mess this science up. But if I understand correctly, what these glasses do is the lenses help focus the light that goes to my retina in, in each eye, that goes to my retina so that I, a clear image is produced. That's what these glasses do. The lenses, they focus the light in the right location. Because here's what happens. When my glasses are off, see, I look weird. And I can't see all of you, so you look weird too. But when I take my glasses off and it's blurry, what's wrong is the outer membrane of my eye, the cornea, I think is what it's called. But the outer membrane of my eye does a poor job of focusing the light in the right spot. It's off. And so these corrective frames, they help me to see clearly. Now, here's what the gospel does. The gospel informs us that God so loves and values people that he gave everything to rescue and redeem broken and flawed people like us. One of the ways you know how much someone cares about you is you ask the question, what are they willing to sacrifice for you? What would they give up for you? And Jesus' answer to that question is, I would give up everything. Jesus laid down his life for his people He laid down his life for his people. And if I'm someone who has received that message, if I've received the message of God's grace that though I don't deserve it, he died for me, he loved me. If I've received that, then all of a sudden I have new lenses by which I see the people around me. The lenses by which I see the people that I like and the people that get on my nerves. When I see that person that's difficult, you know who I'm talking about. Some of you, you're going to be at Thanksgiving in a few weeks. You're going to see that distant relative or that family friend that you don't know why they're a family friend. Somehow they end up at Thanksgiving, and you're going to see them, and you're going to want to do one of these. Walk in the opposite direction. But when I have gospel lenses on, I say, you know what? This is a person for whom Christ died. And if my Savior died to save people like me, like that person, And how can I not but care for them? How can I not but course correct and say, you know what, hold on, pause. I've got my glasses off and I'm seeing blurry. But this is a person made in the image of God whom God loves and values and so I'm gonna care for them. God cares about people and so if we claim the name of Jesus as Christians, then we ought to care for people as well. See, love is not optional in leadership. Now, what I wanna do here in the next few moments we have is I want to give you a couple of action steps from these verses, uh, a few exhortations to implement in your own life. What does it look like to love people according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, according to the example of Paul, Silas, and Timothy? I want to give you these three uh, exhortations from this passage. The first one is this, prioritize your loves. If you're taking notes, write that down. Prioritize your loves. Let me explain a little bit of what I mean by this. All of us have different things we're passionate about. Uh, You might be passionate about your career, and that's awesome. An incredible blessing if you're in a career you love, you're passionate about. Some of us were passionate about a hobby, something we do uh, after we get done with work. Some of us are passionate about different things. We're, We're passionate about our families, our children, our spouses, our brothers and sisters, our friends. We have different things we love. Where we run into trouble, however, is when our loves get out of sync and the priority, the order of our love starts to get out of whack. See, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, their pattern, 
the way they conducted themselves when they came into a city, just like Thessalonica, they didn't come, preach a message in front of a large crowd, proclaim this beautiful gospel message. In fact, if you read the book of Acts, you read some of uh, Paul's sermons, the dude was a baller. He could preach. So Paul could show up, preach a message, and then say, all right, deuces, y'all figure it out, okay? He, he could have very well done that. He was a gifted preacher. That was his strength. That's not what we see Paul do. We see him preach to the crowds and then get down and talk to the individual. Get down and talk to people, to care for people, to love and serve people. Their love for their movement and their platform was inferior to their love for people. It can be so easy to slip into this place. You can imagine Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they get together with the other apostles, and the other apostles are like, oh yeah, how many churches you plant? Uh, six. How many did you plant? Seven, right? You can, you can just imagine the silly posturing that might take place. That wasn't their heart. It wasn't about that. It was about people, caring for people. It's so easy so easy for us to fade into a place where something good, something we should be passionate about, gets all of a sudden prioritized in the wrong order. See, no one ever sets out and says, you know what, today I'm going to sacrifice my family at the altar of my career. No one sets out and makes that declaration. And yet there are families and children and spouses who are hurting because something good that might have been a gift from God, a career, has been placed in the wrong order. That the career helps to serve the family, the family does not serve the career. Prioritize your loves, people are more important. I remember this phrase being drilled into me when I was first starting out in ministry, this phrase, people are more important. Whenever there would be this deadline or a big project or event we'd be working on, this phrase would come up over and over and over again. It was inevitable. Feel like you're at your busiest, you're trying to run up against this deadline and finish your work, and all of a sudden someone will come in with a problem. Something will happen where a loved one is hurting, or something happens and a person will seem like an interruption. And what we'd say, sometimes because we meant it and sometimes grudgingly trying to make us mean it, we'd say people are more important. This project, it's important, but people matter more. The other day, I was at a store that I shall not name. It was Walmart. <laughs> and I was in the tech section. We were about to go on a road trip. I wanted to get a, a little TV DVD player to put to the headset uh, for this road trip so my son he could watch um, some movies, have a peaceful car ride on a long road trip. Um, and so anyways, I, I go to Walmart, and I go to the technology section, and I ask the guy at the counter, I don't remember what he was doing, but I asked the guy, hey, man, uh, excuse me, uh, do you guys have those TVs that attach to headsets, you know, the, the headrests in your car, you put a DVD in it, and the guy looks at me, not exaggerating, he looks at me and he just says, I don't know. And I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm like, you don't know, but you're going to find out and let me know, or I'll get someone who does know, but no, he just stares at me, I don't know. Okay, so then I go and I go and we look, my wife and I, we find this great deal on this, we find it cheaper online, so we even get a price match. We go back, that same guy checks us out at the cashier, and uh, super nice guy, very courteous, kind, but he was clearly not interested in helping me in that moment. So I'm like, here, no thanks to you. Anyway, so we purchased that item. 
Now, clearly in that moment, I was in an interruption to something that he was doing that was more important. I don't know if he was daydreaming about something. He was thinking about what he's going to eat after he gets off his shift. But clearly, I was an inconvenience to him by coming and asking him where this TV might be. Now, I'm in no place to judge that person. Because I rewind the tapes of my life, and there are people throughout, throughout my life that I have treated in a similar way, and maybe I do a better job on the outside of masking it, but on the inside where I'm seeing someone who comes to me who has a genuine need, someone who has a much more serious hurt or request, and I might treat them as though they're interrupting something that's more important when it's really not as important. People are more important. Our priorities are out of sync. One of the amazing things about Jesus, you read through the Gospels, and Jesus is never in a hurry. He's never, someone comes up to him and says, would you help me? Would you heal me? Jesus doesn't say, I'm sorry, I don't have time for this, right? This is not the attitude of our Savior. He stops and he talks to the one. He cares for people. And so if we find ourselves in the place where we think people are getting in the way of the things that matter most, our priorities have gotten out of order. Something has gone amiss. Prioritize your loves. People are more important. The second exhortation from this passage that we would do well to apply to how we care for people is to rethink your position. Rethink your position. Uh, Whether you're someone in an entry-level role, uh, in a management role, whether you're someone on the front lines or in an office, high-rise, whether you're an executive, wherever you fit within your company or organization's chart, that dreaded chart, right, that shows who's in charge of who, who reports to who, wherever you fit within that pecking order, what this passage calls us to do is to rethink the way we view our position. These apostles, they came into Thessalonica, and just so we can be clear, these apostles were the top dogs in the church. If you think of the church organization like that, these apostles were at the very top. I mean, they had authority. Think about this. Paul, the one we're reading about, he writes part of the Bible. That's a lot of authority. So Paul could have come into a place like Thessalonica, thrown the weight of his authority around, and made those under him serve him. He could have come and seen his position as a way to get the people under him to do the things that he wants according to his agenda. That's not the way Paul saw his position. He came in, proclaimed to them the message, and he opened up his life. He saw his position and his authority as a gift from God to lift up the people around him. He came to serve them. One of the quotes that has stuck with me, and I wish I could tell you where I read it, where I heard it, so I can give it proper credit. I even looked it up, couldn't find it, but this is a quote that stuck with me, and something that I'm trying to wrap my mind around more and more. It's this, that org charts, organizational charts, are really care charts. That in your organization, in your home, in your school, in your ministry team, here at your church, wherever you fall within that pecking order, that rethinking our position compels us to say, you know what, the organization I'm in, the people who are under me and around me, my peers, that's a care chart. That demonstrates how each individual within the organization is cared for, knows that they matter, knows that they're significant, and so that when life gets difficult, they're ministered to and cared for. Let's talk for a moment about the ministry teams at our church at West Pines. Some of you, you serve on the parking team or in our kids' ministry. 
You serve in student ministry or you serve uh, greeting or ushering on our tech team, on our band. All those ministry teams that make up our church, they're a part of some sort of organizational structure where there's a point person, a leader. And that structure is there so that we might care for one another, so that no one feels like they're alone, like no one feels like they're someone who's insignificant or not important. We're here for people. We care about people. So rethinking our position compels us to care for those in our sphere of influence. What if in your workplace, you started to rethink your authority and your position as a way to use it as a blessing to lift up the people around you rather than throwing the weight of your authority around to make demands on people? Reshape and turn your work environment upside down. That's the second thing we could share from this. And here's the third one, third exhortation from 1 Thessalonians 2, their example, is to sacrifice your comfort. Sacrifice your comfort. In verse 9, they describe how they worked night and day. They worked night and day. They toiled. They grinded. They put it all on the line. They worked extra hours so as not to be a burden. Now, mind you, these apostles, they're going into a brand new city to proclaim the message of the gospel. And these people, they've seen philosophies and religious movements come through before. They've seen this happen before. And so what they decided to do is, you know what? We're going to work the extra hours, not make demands on people. So that way, when we come in and we preach this message, they'll know we're not, we're not after anything else. We're not trying to get something that's a hidden agenda. We're here to share our lives with you and to share the gospel of God with you. That's our heart. And so they took extra burdens on themselves. See, in in this passage, it uses this father-like example. They say how like a father, we instructed each one of you. Paul had a platform to share his message, but Paul was one who wasn't just addicted to the platform. He got off the platform and talked to the individuals. He cared for people. He went in and he taught them instructively. And one of the ways that we sacrifice our comfort is when there's someone in our spheres of influence, in our families, someone at our workplace, a dear friend, there's people in our spheres of influence that what sacrifice requires, what love requires, is a hard conversation. Where in love, with gentleness, we confront, we encourage, we exhort, we charge, and we invite them to live a life manner, worthy of the manner of, of God, worthy of God who calls them into their, his own kingdom and glory. Sacrificing your comfort means sometimes a courageous phone call, a, for, a courageous visit, a courageous time where we step in and we encourage, we lift up. See, sometimes that question, what does love require of me? You've probably heard it before. What does love require of me? That question will almost always yield to an answer that requires sacrifice. What does love require of me? The answer, almost always, means I'm gonna take a burden on myself so that I might lift someone else up. That's the calling of a leader. That's what it means if we're going to, in our homes, at our workplaces, wherever God has called us to influence, if we're gonna be people who turn our spheres upside down, we gotta love people. We honestly believe at our church that God has brought leaders. God has brought people from different backgrounds, leaders in different aspects of our community, leaders in different areas all throughout South Florida. 
that God has brought a group of leaders that then leave this room and go all throughout South Florida as world changers, as people who turn those places upside down, that communities and schools and workplaces, that sports teams might be changed with this life-transforming message of the gospel, and it starts with loving and caring for people. See, because in leadership, in leadership, competencies are always preferable, but love is never optional can't delegate it, can't hire to make up for it. It's something we have to own. Now, if we're honest, so many times our love or acts that we might think are loving are tainted by selfish desires. Sometimes compliments are really costumes by which we hide our own self-centered agenda. Sometimes we might give a word of affirmation to really just try and get in someone's goodwill. See, sometimes our love is tainted and even friendliness can become a mask by which we hide our own hidden agenda. And so when our love is tainted in that way, when we've sometimes fallen into this place where even our good deeds towards people is in the end motivated out of selfishness, then how do we even get to the place where we love someone? See, the example that's used here that I think is perhaps the best example you could think of, the best relationship you could imagine, is the example of a nursing mother with her child. I want you to think about this for a moment. With a nursing mother who's caring for their child, that child at the point of its infancy, that child, him or her, they can't really offer something back in return for the love being extended by the mother. Like that's a a relationship that's love being pointed in one direction. The mother who's up in the middle of the night, feeding their baby, consoling their baby, changing dirty diapers along with the father. So those who are caring for that infant child, they're not doing so to get something from them. That child at that state can't get something in return. It's almost the perfect example for what love looks like in its purest sense, where you seek the good of another regardless of whether or not they notice, regardless of whether or not they reciprocate your act of love, love in its purest sense is I'm gonna seek out what's best for you regardless of what happens next. Not expecting something in return. It's not not something where I'm expecting an IOU. This is just me extending what's absolutely best, all of my heart towards you. And the only way that we can extend such love is if we realize the incredible love that we've received, the perfect love that's been extended to us. I wanna read these verses to you. This is Romans chapter five, verses six through eight. Romans chapter five, verses six through eight. They'll be on the screen. These are some of the words of the apostle Paul to another church in Rome. Here's what he says. He says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus came and died for sinners. While we were weak at our worst point, in the moment of deepest regret, with that decision that you carry shame over, With all of your flaws, all of your failures, at our worst, Christ died for us. The good news 
is that we don't have to try and fix ourselves before we come to God. In fact, we can't fix ourselves. We're broken. We've turned away from him. And what God does is he looks at you and he calls you by name and says, would you trust me? Stop striving and receive what's been done for you. See, the way we come to God, the way to heaven, is not by our efforts, not by our, mora- not by our morality. It's by receiving what Jesus did for us, what he did that we could not do for ourselves. And I, I honestly believe there are some of you here right now who perhaps you came into this room thinking that God would approve of you, God would accept you if you could just get your life in order that God would begin to love you or God would accept you if you could just start getting on the right track again and start being better in certain areas. And the reality is that God made the first move before you could ever fix yourself. He sent Jesus into the world while we were sinners. Christ died for you. And he invites you to receive that perfect love. See, just like an infant, just like a child, we're incapable, we're incapable of offering something back to God. God isn't in this because we're somehow able to give him something that he needs. He doesn't need anything. But it's this amazing, gracious offer from a loving father who invites all of us to humbly come to him, turn from living our own way, and turn to the Savior. And today, if you are ready to receive that gift for the first time, to say yes to Jesus, to receive his forgiveness that he extended on the cross through his resurrection, then right now is your moment. And church, if we claim that message in that gospel, that God so loved us, then wherever we're at, we ought to be known for how we care for people, how we love them. God has placed you there for a purpose, with a purpose. Let's be known by how we love Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I want to speak to the person here who came today, maybe not with this on their mind, but right now you're realizing that God spoke to you. Realizing right now in this moment that what was just described, the gospel, that you need that. You're tired of trying to fix yourself, tired of striving and striving, and you're ready to to quit, to surrender and receive what Jesus already did for you, if that's you, and today you're ready to say yes to your Savior, then right there where you are, you can make these words your own. Pray something like this to God to declare your trust in him. Say, God, I need you. Today I admit that I I can't fix myself. I can't earn my way into heaven. But Lord, you made the first move. You loved me while I was a sinner. And so today, for the first time, I receive what you did for me. Jesus, I believe you died for me on the cross and that you rose. And so now my life, Jesus, is yours. You are Savior. You are Lord. Now help me to follow you. Heavenly Father, I pray for us as a church that we would be a people known for love that we would be a a people that's known in our community in South Florida as those 
care about people just as you care about people. Father, we love you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.